Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at Job chapters 32 through 37, where we have this uh, peculiar and difficult figure, Elihu. And we're joined today uh, by Dr. Dominic Hernandez. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Dominic Hernandez is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. His PhD at Bar-Ilan University in Israel was advised by our last guest on the podcast, the eminent Edward Greenstein. And Dominic, he didn't only soak up some of Greenstein's linguistic and interpretive gifts when he studied with him, but also a passion for the book of Job. His PhD dissertation uh, is on the issue of the prosperity of the wicked in Job and other ancient Near Eastern literature, and it's likely to be published next year, so look out for that. He has also recently published Illustrated Job in Hebrew, which includes illustrations of the text along with an original English translation. Uh, One of the things that I appreciate most about Dominic, both as a person and as a scholar, is that he is a thoroughly intercultural person. Uh, You see that in the languages he speaks. So when he opens his mouth, I'm never sure what language is going to come out. (laughs) He learned modern Hebrew when he was in Israel and speaks it fluently, but he also teaches both in English and in Spanish. And he brings that kind of intercultural passion to the reading, his reading of the book of Job, as he seeks to understand the book in its broader ancient Near Eastern cult context. Dominic, what first drew you to the book of Job? You know, first of all, I just wanted to say this whole idea of speaking several languages that you brought up, Will, is quite interesting because it's really important to know several ancient Near Eastern languages when approaching the book of Job or when coming to the book of Job. So, you know, it ends up working out for for everyone, for the interpreter, if they're able to to deal with lots of ancient Near Eastern languages. And that's exactly what brought me to the book of Job to answer this first question, uh, Ronnie. So, you know, my my desire to get good at biblical and Semitic languages is really what what drew me to the book of Job. I knew that the language of the book of Job was hard. And I knew that if I was going to argue for my readings well, that I would have to know some Akkadian, that I would have to know Aramaic, some Arabic helps. I would have to know Ugaritic. So I, Ugaritic. And I, I also knew that I was going to have to become with familiar with the literature around the world of the Bible, around the world of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. And so not just Semitic language literature, but also there was going to be some Sumerian literature that was going to help and Egyptian compositions. And I wanted to do a project when I was studying my doctoral degree under uh, the tutelage of Ed Greenstein, as Will, Will brought up. Uh, I wanted to do a project that on the one hand would be specific enough to give me a voice, right? While, but on the other hand, would, bro- would cover broad interests, interests broad enough that would facilitate me eventually teaching on some different topics in the field. And so my personal goals, right, the type of scholar that I wanted to be eventually drove this professional project on the book of Job. So that's really what brought me to the book of Job, the desire to get good at these Semitic languages and then to be able to teach broadly within the field of Old Testament, Old Testament studies. Because he's not mentioned elsewhere, and what he says is fairly derivative of what came before him, many think that Elihu's speeches are a later addition to the book. So, Dominic, what do you think about that? Like, 
whether a later edition or not, how do you see Elihu fitting into the book as a whole? I think there are a couple of things to mention as it relates to Elihu being derivative or not. First of all, we don't know when any of the book of Job was actually written. So we can guess based upon language, we can guess based upon what topics and themes are prevalent in the book. But these things, most of these things that I just mentioned, right, can be intentionally or unintentionally, they could conceivably be intentionally or unintentionally crafted into or left out of a book by the ultimate author. So it's just really difficult to base based upon how something sounds because that can be that can be manipulated, that can be uh, crafted. And I also think it's de- difficult to determine whether or not something was original or unoriginal based upon similar criteria. So Elihu's speeches could sound intentionally different from the rest. For example, there are differences in language, language, there are differences in style, the fact that he calls Job by name, right? The fact that he seemingly has an Israelite's name, Elihu is, is an Israelite name. All of these things might be in the composition for this, for a purpose, in this particular manner, for a purpose. So in my opinion, the question should be, why do Elihu's speeches sound different within the context of the composition? And only secondarily, why might they be different in terms of their composition? I think there are different questions. I go with the minority view in my field that Elihu's speeches are not necessarily secondary or derivative, right? Here's the thing. We don't have any evidence that Job was interpreted without the Elihu speeches as being part of him. And that's important because the history of interpretation doesn't suggest that the book as a whole can even really be understood without these speeches. And so it's been mostly modern interpreters, and I'm not against modern interpretations, but it's been mostly modern interpreters that have strived to break up the book into parts. And so I'm not opposed to to this or modern interpretation in its entirety, uh, but I will say that maybe pre-modern interpreters and those that look at the book literarily, and, and it, it, they have to be a little bit more creative in their ways of understanding the diversity within the book. And so I would say that the Elihu speeches are uniquely and intentionally crafted for several distinct purposes. After the jumbled third round of speeches, the amazing poem on wisdom, Job's monologue in chapters 29 to 31, what else should we, ex- should we expect as readers than the unexpected? And that's where Elihu's speeches come in. He's not mentioned or alluded to in any other section up to that point. He's not mentioned in the text after that point. For the reader of Job, his speeches are completely unexpected, but that doesn't mean that they're worthless. So the question that we have to ask in the text is, what is Elihu doing here? What is the purpose of him showing up in this manner uh, in terms of how the entire composition could be be read? I actually think that Elihu shifts the conversation slowly but surely from a com- from the issue of divine justice and just retribution which it's still you know he he mentions these things to the issue of divine power and authority he starts to talk about nature at the end of his speech right he starts to ask rhetorical questions similar to what god says or how god talks at the end of his speech and basically in some ways we can say that he he starts to sound a little bit like, like god so elihu pulls a little bit back from communicating this harsh retributive paradigm of his friends and suggests that maybe God uses punishment in order to discipline people. Dominic, what for you is the most difficult thing to grasp about Elihu and his speeches? I think the most difficult thing to grasp about Elihu and his speeches is me because I keep changing my mind about them. <laughs> but, but, it, 
But in all, ser- in all seriousness, I think the hardest thing to understand about Elihu's speeches for, for me as a contemporary interpreter is following the argumentation, following the argumentation from beginning to the end of the, of the discussions in the book of Job, and then picking up how, on how Elihu, um, how he, he makes reference to some of the previous conversations that came before him. All of that, I think, is probably the, if we could say, you know, together, that's the hardest thing about the, about, about, that's the most challenging thing to understanding Elihu's speeches. I think overall, Job is, is like, it's a book that's not for the faint hearted and I'm pretty faint hearted. So I just kind of do my best with it, you know? (laughs) Well, let's talk about the contribution that Elihu makes to these various arguments that are going on in the message of the book as a whole. So some, including a number of medieval Jewish interpreters and John Calvin, for example, they see Elihu's speech as actually providing the answer to Job's conundrum, but others such as Robert Alter consider him a quote, irascible, presumptuous blowhard, (laughs) and claim that his main contribution is to anticipate the divine speeches by demonstrating the complete failure of human wisdom. So what do you think? What kind of contribution does Elihu make to the the book? Is it positive or negative? How do you see that? You know, well, I would be willing to say that you chose those examples because they represent extremes, right? And as, as with every extreme, you know, that uh, we, we we think that the truth probably lies someplace in the middle. So it is 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 some part of the conversation contributed to by Elihu's speeches. But we would say yes. So in that sense, we understand why John Calvin might 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 suggest that uh, Elihu has the answers. But is he presumptuous? I, I think it's difficult to get through uh, the Elihu speeches without realizing that there's you know lots of presumption and uh, and he's he's you know. Being a, a, I guess you could say, Im- immature or whatever. Now, on the one hand, we have to say that even a presumptuous or bad characters in well-written literature make positive contributions to the broader narrative. So, I think whether you, if you believe Elihu to be a presumptuous or a bad character, right, um, he's still making a positive contribution to what's going on in the text. And in that sense, I mean, we could even say that the Satan, for example, why I perceive to be a hostile character, though I know that's that's been discussed here, but I perceive the Satan to be a hostile character, that Satan makes a positive literary contribution as well. So on the one hand, you can't even, you can't say, oh, he's presumptuous, therefore he doesn't make a, a positive contribution. Uh, he, I think he, he does. But on the other hand, the question that, that could really be posed is, whether or not we as readers are supposed to perceive him as a positive contributor to the conversation. That's a, that's a little bit of a different question. And in that sense, I would say that he is as much of a contributor as Job's other friends. But Elihu's speeches do something unique. And I do think that they uniquely bridge the gap to the divine speeches. And, and they do this, as I, as I mentioned earlier, by... Um, I, I think that they that by the end of Elihu's speeches, he starts to talk about nature. He starts to ask some rhetorical questions. I think he shifts the conversation a bit to to less about the 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 harsh repercussions of divine retribution, though he talks about that some to God's to God's authority, to God's power, these types of things. So I do, I do think he shifts the conversation, but I also think that he sort of sets it, he does this by setting himself up to sort of be a God, right? He calls himself perfect in knowledge. 
And then he attributes that he says, God is perfect in knowledge. So in, in 36, four, he says, you know, some, someone perfect with in knowledge is with you. And then he goes on to say that God is perfect in knowledge. So he, he, he essentially calls himself, he, he calls God what he calls himself. I mean, so he sets himself up to speak with this authority, right? And in this sense, I do think he shifts the conversation to, in this sense and others, I think he shifts the conversation to, toward the divine speeches. So I, I appreciate what you're pointing out, that he does make positive contributions to the narrative flow and the argumentative flow of the text. But should we think of him as a positive character in that, like, when someone's reading the Elihu speeches, should they think generally Elihu knows what he's talking about, or generally he has no idea what he's talking about? And any positive contribution he makes is kind of in spite of himself. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, clarifying that and and uh, and asking the follow up and not letting me get away with not answering because <laughs> because that, so you're doing a great job here. Um, here's what I think. I, I actually think that uh, I think this is a both and here because on the one hand, again, I do think that um, we see some progression in Elihu's speeches. He does bridge the gap. He does point us toward the divine speeches. On the other hand, I do think that we are supposed to view him as someone that is immature, that's trying to act as if he is more mature. So he, is, he basically has to beg to get people to listen to him, right? He, he continues, he says over and over again, like, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. So I think this is a both and here. And I hope that now you're content with that response. I'm saying yes, no, no, yes. And I wonder if reliable would be another term. Like, do we see him as a reliable figure in terms of his, I'm just imagining, you know, someone who wanted to, uh, I don't know, preach from this text, right? Should they conclude, <laughs> well, Elihu said it, so therefore it's probably wrong. Or is it Elihu said it, so it's therefore it's probably right, right? Is he supposed to be presented to us as a, a credible or reliable interpreter of God's ways in the God's world? God's perspective. Yeah, as, because that's one of the things he talks about a lot. Right. So what I'm saying, and again, I'm remaining consistent here, is that what we should do is we should say, Elihu said it, and therefore I must discern. That, mm -hmm. that, it's not Elihu said it, and therefore I, right. I, I must say it, or Elihu said it, and therefore I must contradict it. I think what we end up seeing, and this gets into a, a broader, broader discussion concerning how we should understand Job in light of other traditionally titled wisdom literature. <laughs> Careful. Uh, uh, yes, right. But 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 so we see in the book of Job, many of the characters saying things that we that are depicted in other uh, sections of the Bible, like the Proverbs, as sort of situational or conditional adages. Right? They they speak sometimes in these adages, and one of the issues is that um, they say things that don't apply to Job's situation. And we as readers are given privileged knowledge by giving. We have the narratives of, of chapters one and two. We have this elevated knowledge. We're looking at what the, the characters are doing. And sometimes they're applying some of these, this traditional wisdom to Joseph's situation when it doesn't apply. And so I think we as contemporary readers, we, we sometimes we can look at the adages and go, oh, this sounds a lot like Proverbs. And therefore, maybe Job's friend was actually right in this situation. When in actuality, I think one of the ways of reading the Proverbs and one of the ways of reading these adages is situational. We have to make sure that the adage fits the situation and Job's friends were not the best at doing that. Now, when Elihu is introduced for us at the beginning of chapter 32, we get a fairly long narrative introduction of Elihu. 
Um, and I'm going to read this for us. But the question that I'm that, that that we have in mind right now when we when we read this narrative introduction is what does the narrator uh, think about Elihu, and what does this narrative introduction tell us about what the narrative's perspective is on how well Job and the friends have been doing in the dialogue. Okay, so those are the two questions I want to frame as we uh, read these verses. Job 32, beginning in verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, son of Barachel the Buzite of the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He was angry also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. But when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he became angry. So what do you think, Dominic? What, do you, what does this narrative introduction tell us about uh, Elihu? And what does it tell us about how well uh, the, uh, the dialogue has gone between Job and his three friends? Uh, initially, we, we see that Job answers all of his friends, but he does so in such a way, as I was just saying, that to Elihu makes himself, that is, makes Job look better than God or makes, uh, you know, him, yeah, look better than God. Um, now, this first, uh, this observation makes Elihu angry at the friends, it seems like, it seems that this is what's happening here. It makes Elihu angry at the friends for not being able to answer Job, and he makes him angry at Job for answering the friends in such a way that uh, that he did not, in which he did not properly honor God, at least to Elihu. Uh, the other thing, another thing that we see, we um, we read one of the reasons as to why Elihu does not show up, or we might be able to say is not even presented up to this point in the book, and that is he's depicted as the youngest, and he says this a couple of times. Elihu, uh, um, Eliphaz, actually. Um, spoke first because he was evidently the oldest. So it seems that maybe the first three friends of Job turn uh, take turns in their their cycles of speech in the first two rounds based upon age. Uh, one more thing, we know from the book of Proverbs as well as other ancient Near Eastern literature, right, that wisdom was traditionally associated with age. So Eliphaz draws that connection out in in chapter fifteen. In fact. The characters of Job draw that connection out uh, plenty of times before we get to Elihu's speeches. Eliphaz more specifically says something like, uh, the gray-haired and the aged are among you. When he's talking to Job, he's making reference to the friends, like, older, we're older than your father, you should listen to us. And the suggestion here is that Job should take, sort of like, listen to his elders. He should take heed to his elders. And by saying this, Elihu is really self-aggrandizing, and we see that a lot especially at the beginning of his, speech, his speeches, he, he's self-aggrandizing and he's letting everyone know, everyone who will listen know, right? That his views, even though he's the youngest, are actually better than those that are older than him. They're much more in line with what's, what's, what's really going on. Yeah, and that's what we see continued in Elihu's long self-introduction here. So. <laughs> The whole of chapter 32, and arguably the first seven verses of chapter 33, are Elihu introducing himself and justifying his right to speak. Yep. So he just talks about 
talking. You know, it's one of these kind of throat clearing introductions that undercut their purpose. Uh, you're trying to get people to listen to you, but all you're really doing is turn, turning people off and making them bored. Uh, is that why my students and, don't listen? <laughs> I'm not going to speak to that. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but there are still some significant things that we can draw from this text. Uh, and we could maybe talk a little bit about just the general, the fact that he takes so long to actually get to talking in a second here. But if we look at 32, 6 to 10, it gets to what you were just talking about in terms of Elihu's youth. So he says, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But truly, it is the spirit in a mortal, the breath of the Almighty that makes for understanding. It is not the old that are wise, nor the aged that understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. So is he making an appeal here to divine revelation over against a human wisdom informed by tradition, which is what the friends had primarily referred to earlier in the dialogue? Well, I, I, again, am I allowed to say both ands here? Because I actually do think that he's making... You only, get, you only get three both ands in a conversation, Dominic. And I think you've already used one or two. So use them carefully. <laughs> well, you know, I do think he's making reference to traditional wisdom here. Because at least the way he's presented in it, or he presents himself in his speeches, he honored traditional wisdom, right? So traditionally, here is... Uh, what would happen? The, I'm the youngest, so I kept quiet. I didn't say anything. So he's appealing to traditional wisdom, to tradition in his speeches. Um, and he does, he appeals to traditional wisdom in, in other parts of his speeches, like he appeals to the doctrine of re just retribution in 34, 11, and 12. Um, but I do think that he also uniquely sets himself, he uniquely positions himself in the position of God by calling himself, as I said earlier, perfect in knowledge. He, he, he calls himself perfect in knowledge in 36.4, and then he calls God perfect in knowledge. So he's using the same phrase to refer to himself and refer to God. Also in 32.8, um, 32.8 seems to depict that the spirit and the breath of the almighty are in him, right? Sort of permitting him to understand uh, even though he's the youngest. So uh, of course, if traditional wisdom suggests that older people should be wiser people and a younger person says, I've waited till now to talk, but now I'm basically wiser than you all, uh, then it isn't traditional wisdom that's wrong. Rather, it's, the, it's simply because the younger person has a deeper experience empowering him to transcend that traditional wisdom. And I think that's what Elihu's getting at here. The, uh, I think it's maybe worth filling in is that the, the, in the traditional take of wisdom that you're appealing to, Dominic, is the aged have wisdom because they're... Uh, longer time spent on earth has enabled them to acquire wisdom right over yeah. a longer span of time yeah because wisdom is so vast right that no one person right in their short brief span of life is going to be able to uh grasp at the breaths of witness right of wisdom so the longer you have on on earth the longer time you have to get at it uh, there's a really great article uh, y'all i'm sure are familiar with it uh, james kugel's the uh, wisdom and the uh, anthological temper mm. which he talks about this that over time you acquire wisdom and that wisdom is then passed on through the generations right mm. so it's passed on by the age down through the generations and it seems like i don't know if this is what you you're getting at dominic is that Elihu is bypassing that because he has this kind of something about the breath of the Almighty within him has given him revelation to be able to 
bypass that length of time to acquire wisdom? Yeah, well, length of time bypasses friends. By, yes, he is bypassing. I should have used that word in my response. I do believe <laughs> that he is, he is a, if, if Elihu can identify with God or closely with God, which he does, then that, that transcends, right. that goes beyond the bounds of the traditional wisdom view that the older you are, the wiser you are. Yes. Right. Because mm-hmm. if you can't appeal to his age, he has to appeal to something. Right. right so he's right. appealing Precisely. to this kind of divine infusion yeah. of, of wisdom. But what's interesting is uh, you do see several other characters in the Hebrew Bible who are similarly young, but are given a kind of divine wisdom. So Joseph, mm. Daniel. Uh, and so some will read Elihu and kind of put him in that same kind okay. of category. Some will even say that um, infused with this divine revelatory wisdom, he becomes a kind of prophetic figure. Okay. So this way, you know, people who see him in a more positive light might push on that. Okay. But then we get later in this chapter, in chapter 32, so verses 18 to 20, and he says, For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. My heart is indeed like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins. It is ready to burst. I must speak so that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. And, you know, I can't read this without imagining it as something that might be more fitting in Chaucer's Miller's tale. I don't know if you've read that, but uh, uh, it has this kind of um, this kind of body humor element to it. Because when we start to think of, you know, I'm full of something, this wind within me, and I need to release it. Uh, And so some will suggest that uh, this apparent comparison of Elihu's words to flatulence actually undercuts his credibility. Uh, What do you think? Look, (laughs) this made me giggle a little bit. Because I will say that if you're in a church youth group or something like this, and you explain it the way that you just did, that might undercut maybe the, you know, the authority of the teacher or, or pastor or uh, preacher in that particular moment. Yeah. Um, you know, in order for us to say that this undercuts what Elihu was trying to get at, we would have to really say that, that his, his source readers, his more original readers, would have understood it the way that we understand it, right? We would have had to say, oh, he, this is how the original, like, if we can uh, say original readers, this is how they would have understood it. They would have understood him to ma- be making reference to this. This is not so appealing. And therefore it, you know, it <laughs> undercuts his, uh, his authority or it undercuts what he's trying to say. But we just really don't know exactly if that's exactly how that would have been uh, perceived during his time. And so Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't perceived as something that would have not been uh, kosher during his time, right? Maybe it was perceived as as a completely, perfectly fine of metaphor utilizing the body's functions. Who knows? <laughs> we do have, just as some evidence from the ancient context, Job 15.2, should the wise answer with windy knowledge and fill themselves with the east wind? Now, whether this wind is the kind of wind we've just been alluding to or not, it still seems like if you're going to be wise, you're not going to have windy knowledge. And yet that's exactly the metaphor that he uses here to describe his own. Um, what is windy knowledge? I, well, at the least, it seems like it's something that's not solid, right? A kind of Hevel kind of 
of like vanity kind of van- thing. Yeah, yeah. But um, so maybe that maybe that could help us in that direction, even if we're not going to go down um, the <laughs> bodily <laughs> function. <laughs> now, when Elihu finally gets into his argument in chapter thirty-three, verses eight through eleven, he begins by quoting Job's words back to him. Uh, so he says this, he says, surely you have spoken in my hearing and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am clean without transgression. I am pure and there is no iniquity in me. So he's quoting Job. Uh, Look, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Though in Chapter 13, verses 24 and 27, Job does say something very similar to what Elihu claims he says. He never uh, says that, he never uses these precise words that he is clean or pure. Now, some scholars claim that Elihu here, and one and to quote one scholar, quote, distorts his opponent's position, that Elihu is distorting what Job says, and that he's setting up a kind of straw man in which Job claims sinless perfection, which Elihu can then easily knock down. Other scholars argue that even if Job doesn't use the exact words clean or I am pure, that Job has repeatedly denied committing any transgression using the same word uh, Elihu uses, right? The word transgression. Um, so do you think this is, uh, how, how, what do you make sense of this debate? Uh, do you think that Elihu is misrepresenting Job's speech and what Job says about himself? Or is he accurately, you know, well summarizing what Job thinks about himself? Am I allowed to say both hand? Okay, <laughs> I won't, I won't, I won't hear. Look, uh, all right. You know, I I, I tend to think I tend to believe that Eliyahu, like the immature young man that he's depicted to be in light of his friends, exaggerates, or maybe we could say this in a more positive sense, uses hyperbole in lots of what he says. And I think that even get, that that's even part of his supposed quotes of, of Job, right? Um and I think I mentioned earlier, you know, he has to basically beg for the other interlocutors to listen to him, which suggests that they wouldn't naturally pay t- attention to him. Uh, they wouldn't pay him any mind. By the way, they don't pay him any mind after this. No one pays him any mind after this. Um, so I think he is more likely to be misquoting Job than he is to actually be giving Job a fair shake. Now, now let, let me tell you what I mean by this, okay? In the book of Job, it is quite possible to quote others. It seems that the, the characters are depicted as paying attention to each other. And so it, throughout the book of Job, it's very clear there are areas in which the, the characters quote each other almost verbatim. So for example, let me just give you this example. In, uh, in, in, in uh, Job chapter 5, verse 9, Eliphaz says something like, God does great and wonderful deeds or, or something along that, right? Who can search him out? This is an English translation of, a, of, a, of, of what he says in Hebrew. The Hebrew of Job chapter 9, verse 10, where, Hebrew, where Job is speaking, the Hebrew is almost identical to what Eliphaz says in 5.9. It's like pretty much identical. There's a, a couple of very small changes, but pretty much identical, okay? Job is straight up quoting him, but he's not quoting him because he agrees with him. Job goes on and then, he doesn't talk about God's greatness. He talks about how God, uh, you know, destroys the righteous along with the wicked and that judgment is all one. And he says some pretty harsh things in Job chapter nine. But the point is, Job can quote Eliphaz. What we end up seeing is that Elihu 
makes reference or does a pretty good job making reference to that same language in 37.5. So Elihu says something similar to what Eliphaz says in 5.9, what Job says in 9.10, but he changes it. It's not exact. It's not the exact same language like we see between Job and Eliphaz. He changes it a little bit, right? So in some places, I think that Elihu is at bare minimum being depicted as paraphrasing badly, maybe for some literary purpose. In, uh, in worst case scenario, he's simply misunderstanding or intentionally paraphrasing badly. So I, I tend to think that, Eli, uh, that Elihu is being depicted as, a, as an immature man who is exaggerating, setting himself up as God and exaggerating in his claims. And we see people do this when they're debating with each other, or arguing with each other all the time, right? Quoting their views, but putting a little twist on them that helps them to defeat those views. Uh, we never so see this on Twitter. Funny. I don't know what you're talking about. This <laughs> never happens What's on the Twitter. twist, though? What's the twist that, Eli, that uh, Elihu is apparently putting on Job's words if there's a twist? Because, I mean, isn't him saying, I'm clean, I'm pure, isn't that the same thing as saying, you know, I'm in the clear, I'm righteous before God? Are, are those not basically synonymous ways of expressing the same thing? I think there are several things. I think it depends on the, on the, on the actual passage. I think we need to handle all the passages exegetically. But I think a, a point was made just in the, in the question, and that is, Job never claims to be sinless. That's never Job's claim, right? So if, if, if any of his interlocutors suggest that he claims this, they're not understanding what he's saying. So it, it, I think it's quite, it's quite clear that um, El, Elihu is, is not, if, if that's what he's saying here, if he's suggesting that Job is saying that Job has never done anything right. that, that would be ever deserving of any retribution, um, I don't. I don't think that's exactly what. I don't think he's properly understanding Job, and certainly not. Certainly not quoting him well. Yeah. Mm. Uh, now, for those who like Elihu, the rest of chapter thirty-three is probably the part that they like best. So here, Elihu lays out two ways that God communicates with humans. So first, in dreams, and that's thirty-three fifteen to eighteen, and then second, through pain. So that's verses nineteen to twenty-eight. And then later in chapter 36, 15, Elihu claims, he, God, delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity, which seems to be a kind of summary of the argument that he's making in the second part of chapter 33. So is Elihu on to something here? Is this a, a valid way of thinking about the way that God communicates with humans? Will, I will say an act of contrition. I ask that you're not mad at me. But the answer is yes and no. I'm serious <laughs> about this. I hope that's not getting old. But this, this is the thing. This is sort of the, the tension in reading Job, right? Because naturally, as readers, we want to be reductionistic. We want to be dogmatic about certain things. And, and, and we, we don't desire to nuance our readings uh, mm. and then be, maybe ha even have those nuance readings corrected. I actually think here, you're asking, is he onto something? This is a yes or no question, but I don't think it can be answered quite that simply. So I, I think, yes, he's onto something if you're asking if he's talking in terms of traditional wisdom, right? So the idea of someone suffering because they're doing something bad, and maybe they could be brought into a correct relationship with God is a very traditional perspective. And so Elihu seems to be speaking along those lines, right? He seems to be saying, um, and he's not original here, but he seems to be saying, 
God could afflict human beings in order to bring people into a right standing with him, or right in order to get them to, 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 to turn or something like this. But I'm not so sure that he is saying that, uh, I'm not so sure I can say that he is onto something in terms of what is actually happening with Job and that, um, that you know, in terms of how the entire story is crafted. Job is, cra- Job is crafted in such a way that the reader is given privileged information, as I mentioned, in the prologue. And so we know Elihu's wrong about Job's specific situation because the situation is as a result of the divine contest. So yes and no. Yes, if we're speaking in terms of traditional wisdom. No, because that particular aspect of traditional wisdom does not apply in Job's situation. We as readers know that. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think for those who see Elihu as providing the answer to the book or something like that, what they're actually doing is they're universalizing this statement here, right? It applies to all that, you know, your suffering can teach you something about God. But actually, as you pointed out, the the validity of this statement universally is undercut by the book itself because it doesn't apply in Job's situation. So we can't know. The other thing, just to circle back to what we were talking about before with the connections between Elihu, Joseph, and Daniel. So the communication through dreams, Mm -hmm. this is another connection there between Joseph and Daniel where dreams are an important way. Um, But uh, a theme, uh, at least in Daniel, is that dreams can be misinterpreted, right? Right. Uh, And so even again, and um, Dominic, I'm sorry for keeping putting you on the spot here, but Elihu is consistently ambiguous. So the fact that you keep on answering yes and no, both and, it actually fits perfectly, I think, uh, with the text. Um, And so even when we think about Elihu in this tradition of Joseph and Daniel, another young wise man, or in the tradition of the prophets, you know, he's, he's speaking from Revelation, he could be used to undercut those traditions, right? He represents them, but poorly, uh, which means we can't put so much faith in them. Uh, So do you have any other thoughts on that, Dominic? In terms of the ambiguity (laughs) of of Eliphaz, that's why we have people on the extremes in their interpretation of what, what he does within the context of the book. You have people that say, no, Elihu's speeches are key to getting what actually is going on in Job, the purpose of the book. In my opinion, that's a bit reductionistic. And there, as we go through these speeches, there's, there can be some wrenches thrown in that. I think it can be argued, but is that what the, is Elihu's speeches, what the book is all about? And then others basically say, his speeches were added later. They're kind of worthless in terms of the entirety of the composition. If you sort of cut them out, you could still sort of see where the composition was going. And I would say, eh, I'm not so sure about that because it seems that uh, they do contribute somehow, some way to directing us to the divine speeches. So I, I don't, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I think that there's the ambiguity, um, the way that things are set up now is very similar to a real conversation, which sometimes there's misunderstandings with regard to what the conversation partner's doing or saying. Uh, so to your point um, that you brought up with the dreams and the, you know, Joseph and Daniel, do some scholars read this? Is this what you're saying? That some scholars read the book of Job as a whole. On the one hand, it undercuts traditional wisdom because the friends are proposing that, you know, he's uh, suffering because he has done something wrong. So they're undercutting that traditional view of wisdom. But then also through um, Elihu undercutting this other way of attaining wisdom, which is through 
revelation, whether a prophetic type or dreams, yeah. that it's undercutting both. And yep. then neither of those are sufficient or good enough for us. We're going to have a different, like wisdom ultimately resides with God in the end. Is that kind of the right. idea? Or they might go as far as to say, there's no, the book is just undercutting any way that we can know at all. That's, a, oh, okay. that's like the right. completely skeptical reading of the book. Right. So you could either have it undercutting those other ways to put the focus on God or undercutting everything, including God himself, you know, based on the way that the God speeches are interpreted. It's Gerald Jansen, who is one of those who reads the Elihu as a kind of prophetic mediator, but his point is noticing connections between Job and Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, there's this conflict, which prophets are we going mm -hmm. to listen to? And so Elihu presses that, like, who is Job going to trust? Is he going to trust Elihu's interpretation mm -hmm. of things, or is he going to hold out to hear from God directly? Or not, and I think that's an interesting reading. Mm -hmm. um, can we just very briefly? We want to sure. do a speed round, like some other podcasts. But just ask you very I'm not briefly. Not sure if we can do anything briefly about Job. Is that possible, <laughs> Job? Briefly. So chapter, here. Um, just very briefly, chapter thirty-three, twenty-three to twenty-five mentions this kind of angel, this mediator, uh, who can deliver someone, uh, deliver the upright. Do you think there's any connection there with the umpire or witness or redeemer that Job mentions in chapters 9, 16, and 19? Yeah, I don't know. Am I allowed to do that? I mean, okay. here's the thing. This is a little bit of a difficult, I think a little bit of a difficult verse, right? So if you if you continue reading, verse 26 says, then man prays to God, or is it the angel that prays to God, right? Then he prays to God and he mm -hmm. accepts him. You see all these, like, who's the he? He accepts him if he prays to God, right? So is it the angel that's praying to God? If, if that's the case, then there's some sort of intermediator there. But many of the English translations, I'm not sure what translation you're looking at right now, Will, but some of the English translations might say, uh, might make reference, might suggest that it's the angel praying to God or the, or the person praying to God. So if it's an angel functioning on behalf of a person, there's an intermediate, some sort of intermediator there. But if it's the person then praying to God, then it's the angel encouraging the person to pray to God and then God accepting the person, right? So I think there's a little bit of an issue there that needs to be worked out. I'm not so sure because it, there's, it's, a, it's a little bit uh, obscure with the pronouns. Because of so the pronouns. Once again, right. So once again, Elihu is ambiguous. So I should just some, put in a plug some here. Might have... <laughs> I, I'm just going to put in a plug here for... Um, Cooper Smith, uh, who did his PhD at Wheaton College, wrote his dissertation on the Elihu speeches and argues that they are intentionally ambiguous. Okay. And so I got to be an external reader. I have never met Cooper, but I want to be his best friend now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After this experience of discussing the chapters. Uh, in chapters 36 and 37, we uh, have Elihu kind of functioning as this pivotal uh, figure that you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, right? He pivots us from, from a number of the things that the friends have said and their accusations uh, against Job. And then he pivots us to some of the things that God himself will say. And he seems to foreshadow and anticipate things that God will say. So uh, especially in his imagery of the greatness of, of uh, God's greatness in creation, and when he describes things like a developing storm. So this begins in 36 verses 27 through 30. For he draws up the drops of water. He distills his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop upon mortals abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering, the thunderings of his pavilion? 
See, he scatters his lightning around him and covers the roots of the sea. Now, this imagery then continues into chapter 37, which repeatedly refer to clouds, lightning, and thunder. Um, and Elihu even begins to incorporate rhetorical questions that are quite similar to the questions that God will then ask Job in the divine speeches, such as this. Elihu asks, can you, like him, spread out the skies uh, hard as a molten mirror? Now, how do you take the similarities? You've already touched on this, but how do you take the similarities between Elihu's speeches and what God will say to Job? Yeah, we have touched on this, but I'm glad that we're bringing it up again, because I think this is one of the very important things about Elihu's speeches and how we see an eventual transition into the divine speeches. So I've mentioned that it seems like Elihu sets himself up sort of as a mini deity. Now, ironically, in this sense, if, we're, if I'm right about this, that he's sort of setting himself up as a mini deity or something like that. In this sense, he's the most foolish of all of his friends. But mm. here's what I think is happening here. By the end of the book, everyone is sort of worn out and tired, right? So that, as we get toward the end of the book, everyone's sort of worn out and tired. And then Elihu comes in and he's angry and he starts to act, right? You know, uh, he starts to act like a know-it-all, sort of quoting Job, but not really doing it that well, in my opinion, maybe with a bad attitude. Um, it's not so dissimilar to, let's say, uh, parenting teenagers, just conversing with someone who thinks that he or she is more mature than, than they really are, right? And sometimes <laughs> when we're struggling and we're exhausted and a know-it-all comes on the scene and tries to explain that, which is go exactly what's going on, misunderstanding your words, your arguments, misquoting what you've said, thinking that they're more mature, that person might sound like you, but is actually the most disrespectful. And so what good does it do uh, in any type of, was it, what good does it do in many of these types of situations to respond? It doesn't do very much good. You, 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 resp you, you can ignore people that act like this in, in these types of situations. And I think something like that is happening here. You know, Elihu has set himself up sort of to be like God. He's a perfect knowledge. We have to all pay attention to him. They're, you know, he's calling everyone to pay attention to him. He's misquoted, he tries to prove his point through sounding wise. And if the reader's not careful, we might fall into thinking that he actually sounds wiser than the others, or that he's actually, I guess we could say, closer to the truth, when the simple fact is that he set himself up to repeat many things, especially like concerning the doctrine of the of just retribution, that would cause us that that should cause us to wonder if there's anything to what he's saying. Um, so let me just Get to, this is supposed to be a speed round, I, I guess. Uh, the best part of this is that Elihu finishes his speeches. The last verse of his speeches, he says something like, he, that is God, does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit, or more specifically, in their own heart. But like, how ironic is that? That's exactly mm -hmm. what we see happening, right? God doesn't pay attention to Elihu in the, in the, in the, in the, in the whirlwind speeches. It seems like he set himself up. He's conceited in his own heart. He doesn't get, God doesn't pay attention to him. He doesn't even mention, he's not even mentioned anywhere, right? <laughs> I think that's what we're seeing in Elihu, in this sense, the epitome of arrogance, which it sounds, which is, you know, again, ironically, it's the epitome of arrogance, I think, which is why it sounds so right to contemporary readers. Um, now, maybe I should have said that, but it doesn't matter. I said it. Now, when God steps on the scene, he relates to nature and relates to the rhetorical questions the right way without making reference to Elihu, 
just like we would ignore sort of that obnoxious teenager or that obnoxious argument person who's arguing with us um, and, you know, not desiring to to uh, really arrive at the truth, I, I guess you could say. Yeah. I mean, we could imagine Elihu's whole speech starting, well, actually, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but then, I mean, it is significant literarily that the, you're, there's a kind of growing storm in the background of Elihu's speeches. I, mean, I think it, actually for me, one of the literary elements of the book of Job that I really appreciate is that even as I think the author is trying to undercut Elihu, he's having a, a, this storm growing that will then be the true voice of God that will come in in chapter 38 through the imagery that Elihu uses. It's really beautiful moment in the text. Now, uh, it's it's worth pointing out that when Elihu talks about the drops of water, he's talking about God. He's not talking about himself, right? right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The the reason I bring that up is because, you know, we've talked about the possibility of Elihu being depicted as this kind of mini-God, right? right? But he's not coming in a theophany, is he? Right? He's not using this language to shroud his speech in divine revelation or anything like that. Well, Again, you, you said theophany, and then you said shroud his speech in divine revelation. I think they're different. Okay. So it does. It, uh, he he doesn't he doesn't come he doesn't emerge from the whirlwind like we see in the next chapter, right? <laughs> right. Just after. So he's he, he's there's there's no theophany here, but he is uniquely tying what what he says to God in mm-hmm. in a way that permits him, as we spoke about earlier, to transcend the limits of traditional wisdom, which would suggest that his older companions knew better than he does. He actually knows better than them. And he mm-hmm. very early in his speeches suggests that it's because his words are just like what God would say. Mm-hmm. What's, what, what I think is ironic is that when God comes on the scene, he does speak to lots of some of the things that Elihu mentions, especially toward the end of Elihu's speeches, but he does it without mentioning, he ignores him. He does it without <laughs> mentioning uh, Elihu, just like we might ignore a, a troublesome interlocutor that acts like a know-it-all right. in maybe some contemporary discussions right. or arguments or Twitter or whatever. <laughs> well, that's great. Thanks, Dominic. Um, now, at the end of our episodes, we like to ask our guests to blurb about something. It could be a blurb about a book or about um, a new activity you began or something you picked up at the hardware store. Is there something you'd like to blurb for our listeners uh, that when they um, hear your blurb, they just think, oh, wow, I, I've got to get my hands on that thing? Well, there's, I guess I have, uh, can I say yes and no? No, I'm just kidding. I have three, <laughs> I have three things actually. They're quick. Don't worry. Number okay. one is we've made, we made reference several times to uh, Professor Ed Greenstein's translation of the book of Job. I just want to blurb that. Uh, I helped a little bit with some of the research of that. I was enthralled with the project while he was doing it. And now that it's done, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a treasure chest, I guess you could say of uh, philological information, ancient Near Eastern background. It's not a dense commentary, so it could be used by lots of people, but what it does, it just, it just helps us nuance our readings and recognize that the text of Job is, is a bit more complex than sometimes our English language translations make it seem. That's one thing, and, that, and I think that's very good and uh, you know resource. The second one, and this is a bit more of a dense resource. Yes, I was just going to say, if our listeners haven't listened to the previous episode oh, yeah. with 
Professor Greenstein, then you get a real taste of the approach that he takes to translating the book. So do that. The, yeah, highly recommended. This the second thing that I would that I would uh, blurb about is I, I recently read a book as in last year uh, called Metaphor Competition in the Book of Job. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but this is one of the best books I think I've I've read about the one of the most enlightening books I've read about the Book of Job. It's it's very um, it's very well written first of all, and so technical books being well written uh, that, that's sort of an oxymoron sometimes, right? It's a, a very technical book, but it's well written and really discussed. I, I mentioned earlier that this the the that that it's imperative i mean absolutely imperative to follow different streams of metaphor usage and discussions and over metaphors in order to follow the different tracks in the conversation and this book really points that out very very well so i highly recommend that and then the last thing i could say is um the most frequent question that i get about the books formerly known as wisdom literature so ecclesiastes job and uh proverbs especially is, man, how do we teach these within the context like of our church or in a small group Bible study or something like that? And uh, I just wanted to encourage people to try. So uh, one of the things that was most influential in my life was were, were, were Bible teachers that taught through all of the texts expositionally. And I've written a little bit about this and the influence on, on my life and how that goes all the way back to the Jesus People Movement here in Southern California many years ago in a blog post that I wrote called from hippies to the hood. So I want to encourage those people that are from Christian backgrounds that are listening, that like to teach through the Bible, but don't really understand the importance of it for these types of books, maybe check out that blog post from hippies to the hood. So that's on your website, which is domshernandez.com. It's a beautiful website, by the way. Uh, I Thank not you, many Will. academics have websites quite like that one. Uh, and you've just, you know, speaking of teaching through those texts, you have a book on Proverbs that was recently published. Yeah, a book. I have a book on, on the book of Proverbs that came out last year called Proverbs Pathways to Wisdom by, with Abingdon Press. Um, intended to be a, a study going through the book of Proverbs. It consists of uh, five chapters. And so I, I also have a video to help people um, like in small group Bible studies. And then there's also a study guide with that. Great. So if you wanted to try and do what Dominic is encouraging, you could go to those resources, which could be helpful for you. Well, Dominic, thank you so much for taking the time and using your expertise to guide us through this very difficult and often ambiguous and hard to interpret passage, like so many in the book of Job. Um, and to those who are listening, uh, if you have unambiguous uh, praise for this episode. If you found it, you know, actually, this is, was really helpful for me in understanding this really difficult text. We would really appreciate uh, if you would put a review. Uh, if you put a review in Apple Podcasts, it, it helps other people find this episode. So we really appreciate it. And let me give you a both and. You could not only do that, you could also share this episode with others, or you could go on our Facebook group. If we didn't answer some of your questions, that's a place to ask questions, and we're going to try and circle back to those and address them later in this series. So thank you again for listening. Thanks again to Dominic, and take care. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.